0: Father in heaven, we're thankful for that story of that flower, how both in its life and its death it pointed to the creator, the one who came for each one of us, the one who died for each one of us, who is resurrected and is coming again soon. Help us to see clearly how that teaching is a foundational teaching for not only us as Christians, but for the general understanding of the universe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue along in this series, I want to look at uh, this topic here this morning, how Christ, we find Him in creation. If you have been following along in the Staying Connected Bible reading plan, you're probably in the Old Testament by now, and if you're there, you've probably gone through quite a bit of Genesis, or maybe you've finished Genesis and you're moving on in your Bible reading plan. But as I think of this topic this morning, Christ there at creation, notice I didn't put Christ in creation, at creation. I believe this is a foundational truth that needs repeated over and over again. And as I go back to an experience I had years ago, I want to share with you a story of how, when I was in school, this teaching was not being emphasized. When I went to public high school, uh, there's no real knowledge in my mind of any experience there that that took place where they were upholding any view of origins other than evolution. And so when I went to Union College in Lincoln, Nebraska years later, and was taking an origins class from a biology teacher, I was a little bit surprised with the feedback I received one day when I was asked to give a presentation to that class. The origins teacher said, we want a couple of theology majors to do some research on the origins of death and how God is going to restore the world and what it's gonna be like after that. So he asked us to go back and that was in the days when PowerPoint was just beginning. And so I wasn't very good at throwing pictures up there and all of that. I just threw a bunch of text up on the screen. And I developed a presentation, the biblical, and he asked us to include Ellen White, view of death and restoration. So there I am. It's one of my f- real first presentations for that class. And Chris and I, I knew him affectionately as Bigfoot. He had these size, was it 14, 16 feet? Anyways, big guy, big feet and him and I were a little bit nervous because we didn't know what to expect. Every time they had a theology teacher in that class, some of the students would just attack the theology teacher. And this is at a Christian college too. And so here we are putting up our slides up on the screen. I remember Chris went first and then I went afterwards and I went bang, 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 hit all the points real hard that he had tried to do with a couple of stories. And I thought I had pretty good evidence for what I had presented. And we sat down and then, no, actually, before we sat down, the questions started coming. Hands started shooting up. What about this and what about that? You mean to tell me that in the earth made new, when you pluck a flower, it's not going to die? How can that be? Everything dies when you pluck it. And just all of these, these doubtful thoughts throwing out there. And How can you say that death began with sin when there was all these years of evolution before that? Now, this was a little surprising uh, to two Christian students there at a Christian college to hear this. These people literally believe some of them, they would got into their mind that there were millions of years of life and death before the first human beings. so how could you say that, their, that sin and death originated with Adam and human race? That was their argument. How would you answer it? Well, it was the first time I had heard it. Um, I wish I had taken the origins class I took on my master's level before I took that class, because I wasn't expecting that. And the biology teacher stood up and he tried to defend the biblical view of creation amidst shouting and yelling at him. And he dismissed the class, brought him back, and began to systematically show them from a biological standpoint, from the level of DNA and cells and all of that, the evidence for creation. They listened to that, but they weren't willing to listen to a Bible view of death and restoration. Kind of troubling, isn't it? Maybe you get your heart rate thumping just thinking about it. If we throw out the biblical view of creation, do we realize what all we're throwing out with it? We're literally throwing out the baby Christ himself with the bathwater. And as I go back into that story, the question comes to my mind why were they so out of everything they said? Why was it that they were so angry? That's what bothered me the most. I could care less if they threw arguments at me. I heard all kinds of arguments going to public school and public college before I got there. That didn't bother me. It was the anger that was just so much there. I said to myself, "Um, it just doesn't remind me of Jesus. And I remember Chris and I left that classroom. And that evening, uh, after he got done with his classwork, we were still both a little bit disturbed by it. We went for a walk around campus, and we looked up at the stars. We had a nice talk together. Chris is no longer in the ministry now, but um, due to other things. But I remember him and I talking and saying, we're going to hold fast to the biblical view no matter what. Not in a naive way, because there is some science that we need to understand in some ways that does correspond with Scripture. We're not saying absent of science. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to matters of faith and belief, we are going to hold to the biblical view no matter what even if we don't understand it. As one of you wrote this poem years ago, maybe this is part of the answer as to why they were so angry. Maybe they truly believed that what I was saying was false. Maybe they thought I was deceived. Uh, You can be deceived by what you read, so study God's word and let him lead. That's what we were trying to do. Maybe that wasn't happening. I don't know. I don't know their hearts. I can't judge their motives. All I know is what I was seeing. It seemed like anything we presented from the Bible was trying to be squashed and put away. You can be deceived by what you hear. Counterfeit resembles truth, so beware. You can be deceived by what you see. Focus on God's truth, it will set you free. Do you notice where this poem is going? It's describing how there are options for us to consider besides the truth. Do you know what's going to happen if we do? We find ourselves slowly but surely being deceived. You can be deceived if you don't pray. So talk with God all through the day. That's, that's a basic fact, too. There are things, that, arguments that hit us, philosophies that come our way, different views, even of Scripture, that if we don't watch out for them, could take us away from the pure foundation himself. Yeah, we must spend time in prayer. Darkness will fade, God's light will shine through, and the Holy Spirit will be there to guide you. If, if we're focused, as it says here, on God's Word, and prayer. So Chris and I, we continued in the faith. We didn't check out. We just started uh, doing some more in-depth research. Chris is actually studying to be a medical doctor now. Um, his scientific knowledge is in there. He actually went into the science part and started finding arguments for creation from science and it bolstered his faith. Whereas I went the other route and I began finding uh, linguistic and all kinds of ways to bolster the biblical view and later on we put it to, started putting it together. And I'm not going to present all of that to you here this morning. I'm just going to present to you why I believe this truth is important for us to uphold. Creation is pretty clear, points to a creator, right? Uh, even if you pick up uh, Sean Pittman's book, uh, he talks about uh, turtles all the way down. You'll find he's a local member of the Reading Church. He, he will go through and show you point by point by point, design, design, design. Even if you don't believe in a, in a being that, that created everything, there's at least a designer and you've got to figure out what that is. And I believe from the biblical viewpoint, it's none other than Jesus, the creator himself. As you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That same phrase is popping into Scripture thousands of years later. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do You notice the linguistic link there. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You get to John, John is very clear. In the beginning, Jesus, the Word, created. So to undermine this text back here, you have to undermine a whole lot of texts that testify of this man right there. And that is why this is so deceptive. I used to have a professor, Elder Sigrosky, and he said, first they deny the word of God. Now first they question uh, church traditions and things like that. Then they deny uh, some of the writings of Ellen White. Then they deny and tear apart the word of God. And they keep just little bits that they want. And that becomes their conglomerate of faith. And a lot of times they leave the church. Well, it would make sense then to leave the church because you know what? Jesus is the foundation of the church. And if you're rejecting him, you might as well leave. And so as I look at these two texts and I compare them, Christ, God is called the Word in John 1, the Word is the Creator in John 1, the Word is Christ in John 1.14. So anything that detracts from creation and the Creator, I believe, is Antichrist. And Why is that? Because in the original language of Greek, you find anti can mean against, yeah, it's against Christ, but it can also be in place of. So in order to put something in place of Christ, you have to remove him first. And isn't that what Lucifer did? He wants to ascend to the throne of God itself. He wants to be there amongst the starry host. He's the one who wanted to receive worship. So in order for him to receive worship, he has to undermine God's law and God himself somehow remove him. And I am not going to go and get into negativity in the sermon here. My main goal is to point out that sometimes it's necessary to warn us as individuals against things that could detract from Jesus. That's what the whole sermon series has been about. Spend the time focusing on the true, not the counterfeit. Spend the time focusing on Jesus, and you'll find a lot of these other things will be left by the wayside. And I have found that usually when you detract from Jesus, you oftentimes will put another picture of God in its place. It's not a very pretty picture of God. It's usually an angry God of some kind or, or some abusive God, and it's really not helpful at all. kind of god you don't want to approach can you imagine if you remove jesus who was always there to heal who always talked about the meek inheriting the brand new spanking new earth you know restored restored world and all of that and you put in its place a unknown god of evolution that's going to allow more millions and billions of years of death and destruction and all of that until finally we get pull up our own bootstraps enough to make a utopia of this world as human beings have we succeeded so far Some people want to eliminate this God so that they can be their own God. And I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, am I always seeing everything 100% right? Are you? That's not a very good picture of God either. As much as we try to reflect God, we are not God. We cannot stand in the place of God. Well, you look back here in Genesis, and it mentions the name of this creator. It wasn't Jesus or Jesus. It was actually, we get into the text, and we find it's, It's none other than Yahweh or Lord. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the the heavens, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all the creepers creeping on the earth. Notice it has this plurality of God here. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We are not God. We cannot take the place of God. Therefore, we look to him. We can reflect him like an image. You know, you can a likeness, a resemblance, but we are not him. And the word Lord isn't really mentioned here, but he's among the us there. He's amongst the plurality there. How do we know that? We go to the next chapter, we find the person being mentioned who's doing the creating. According to John, it was Jesus. According to here, he's got a different name. And the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. You know, as you look at Genesis, you really don't find a natural chapter break here. You must think to yourself, why did they just keep going with that chapter? Because you get the first picture of creation in Genesis 1, and then it continues and mentions the seventh day. They should have just continued all the way down, right? So it's not really the most natural chapter break, but let's continue and see what it says. And so God has made everything, including mankind. Let us make man in our image. And the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day... God ended his work which he had made he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made and God blessed the seventh day sanctified it because in it he had rested from all his work which God created to make pause there who is this god Jesus. pretty obvious right if you compare John chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 1 it's pretty clear who it is and then you go to Jesus' own words he says I am Lord of the Sabbath right he is the he's the one who made it knows how to keep it so to reject the Sabbath is really in a way to reject the one who made it that's serious enough but can you imagine rejecting everything he's made as being made by him you say it's not made by him it's made by some other process that's even worse and if we would uphold the seventh-day Sabbath hold fast to that truth proclaim that truth how it points to Jesus how many infidels and atheists do we really have in the world a lot less We truly reflected Jesus through the Sabbath. And then you get to verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. So verse 3 ends the seven day cycle, if you will. And by the way, if you want to argue about whether it's seven literal days or not, it's pretty clear in the original language. The word yom, day, plus a number, like first day, second day, third day, it always is a 24 hour period in the Hebrew Scriptures. And you say, well, Moses didn't know what he was talking about. Yes, he did. Do you not realize he was schooled in the school of Pharaoh and Egypt and all of that? Don't they know what they're talking about? And the sciences and the languages and all of that to be prince of Egypt? Sure, he does. You go to the book of Hebrews, it tells you that too. That he was schooled in those things. But he set aside those things to be the leader of Israel. And so he knows what he's talking about. These are literal seven, seven seven-day cycle of a week. And then it says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in that day. Jehovah God or Yahweh God, different pronunciations people get, German, Jehovah. Uh, yod Hey vav hey is what they told me in Hebrew class. Yahweh God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. Well, I thought we already talked about all that. Are we getting to another creation story here? No, we're not. It's restatement. Uh, you ever tell stories around the campfire once in a while to family or friends? You know and you're telling a story and 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 you kind of throw in a little detail pointing them back to something you said before like yeah that, that's why that happened right this is what's happening here it's called restatement I'm not the only one who believes that uh, as you go into different scholars they believe that as well Genesis 2 5 and every shrub of the field was not yet on the earth and every plant of the field had not yet sprung up like well, wait a minute if he made all the plants and where the, what's he talking about is he contradicting himself uh, you go to the Hebrew language, you'll find different kinds of plants are being referred to in Genesis. Some are being refer- referring to plants before the fall. Some are referring to plants after the fall. You've got to figure out what he's talking about before you reject it. For Jehovah God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought he already made man in day six. Repetition and enlargement, we call it. They repeat something, restate it, and continue on the story from there. Of course, there was a man to till the ground. He already finished the seven days of creation. He's just going back through, reviewing details with you, and he's going to focus on the important thing, and that is mankind, human beings. There went up from the earth a mist and watered all the face of the ground. Why is that important? Because later on, he's going to write about the flood and how the rain came down and all of that, and so now you understand part of the history. Uh, it didn't used to rain like it does now. We want it to rain, but it used to mist, the water would come up from the ground and water everything. It didn't have to come pouring down in torrential Nebraska thunderstorms. I remember the first time I met a t- Nebraska thunderstorm. I was at Walmart. I saw all these people standing there at Walmart entrance. I said to myself, it's just a little rain. You know, I'm from Oregon. It's a little rain, right? And I stepped right out into it with my wife. And I kid you not, we could not find our car. And you know what happened. We had a shower before we had a shower at home. It was just drenching us. I remember I got out there part way and I'm like, what? Did we? <clears throat> so it never rained quite like that before. We find back in Genesis account, before we had the downpours and the rain that we have today, like we have today, it would come up and would mist it. Moses is just hitting details along the way. There we are, you know, in this world where it rains and floods come down and cause mudslides and all that in the middle of the semi-arid land. But that wasn't the way it was before. The water used to come up and mist the ground. So Moses is trying to give you a little history, tucking in little lessons as he goes along through Genesis. Where did those thorns and thistles come from and all that we see out in the desert? He kind of throws in a little blip here and there about that. So he's giving us some details. And you notice it mentions mankind again. Uh, this is common in genealogies. You know, um, you go down to Abraham, or just a, take the genealogy of Adam and Eve, and you look at their genealogy, you look at Genesis one, two, and three, and you get down later on when it mentions their genealogy, it gives kind of a little summary statement and then it hits you all the details with it. So Genesis 1 is really a summary statement. We get into chapter two, now we're looking at all the details of how God made man. It's a Hebrew way of writing. And so we don't have two creation stories. If you believe that, uh, then you open yourself up to all kinds of weird theories and stuff. It doesn't teach that at all. If you think I'm the only one saying this, go to the pulpit commentary. In accordance with a well-known characteristic of Hebrew composition, the rider having carried his subject forward to a convenient place of rest, right after the seventh day, he pauses, right? After he carries it there, he pauses. Now he reverts to a point of time in the six days antecedent to man's appearance, before man's appearance on the earth. So he goes back and he's starting to tell you more about some of these details. It's a common way to look at it. And there are some important scenes in here. Look at these scenes. In Genesis 2, 7, Yahweh, or the Lord God, for man of the dust of the ground, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul. So he's, God is the life giver. This is how mankind becomes human beings become alive, is through his life. Not through all kinds of primordial soup that eventually that, uh, some kind of half, this and half that type of creature comes out of it and eventually develops and we get into this whole geological column theory. It tells you right here, this is how it takes place. You actually think that Egyptians and others back in those days and the Greek philosophers that are eventually going to develop, you don't, you don't think that they came up with some of this stuff before Darwin? I mean, they were educated people. We, we think that they weren't. But he's very clear. As an educated person, he says, this is how we came about. God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and we became a living soul. We don't have a soul. We are a soul, and that's how we become alive is through God doesn't end there. Yahweh planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now we have, after he's made human beings, a choice. Do I choose a path that gives me all kinds of knowledge but exposes me to all kinds of evil or do i choose the path that god has has put out there and commanded this is what you should eat not that don't eat that eat this which path am i going to choose life or a path that leads to death if you look down into most of the major spiritual decisions you have to make it's really that simple am i continuing on the path that god the author of life would like me to go on Or am I being taken off into some weird belief system that could take me away from him, which leads me to death? I don't know about you, but out of those two trees, I want to know the one that has life. I don't want to spend all my time looking at everything else that has evil in it. I want to look at God, not good and evil. And Jehovah God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden, or garden of delight, to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How does death come into our world then? By disobeying the commandments of God. He tells him to keep the garden. Richard Davidson and others believe that this is an idea of priesthood, that somehow he's to be a steward of the garden. Who's in the garden? God himself. Who was in the temple, who wanted to be dwelling among them? God himself, right? So they talk about how it wasn't just to go out there and make everything grow. It was also a worship experience with them and God in that garden. They communed with God. They were to keep that communion with God strong, staying connected with him. And so as I look at this statement here, if you eat of it, you'll surely die. Do I believe that? Do I believe that death came into this world because of a bad decision of Adam and Eve? Disobeying God's commandments? I believe it just as much as I believe that anybody who breaks God's commandments also finds themselves on a path of death. If you start stealing from some people around you, what happens to that relationship? If you had a relationship, eventually there's some distrust in there. Eventually you could sever a relationship through stealing from them. I still remember when I took my mom's car. You know, it's just, I went over there, I took her keys, I walked out, I said, I'm having nothing to do with you, and I got in the car and I drove off with the emergency brake on. (laughs) I drove with that emergency (laughs) brake on for 15 miles. Stupidity. Took the police quite a while to catch up with me. Uh, I knew how to get away from them and leave the car one place and be not found when they came looking. But eventually it hit me that, you know what? You can't run forever, Murray. You not only hurt Broke the law, but you hurt your mother. What was that little still small voice doing to me? Telling me, you've done something here to, that could be irreparable unless you want to make, uh, make things right with your mother. So whether you want to turn yourself in for the sake of the law or be take, make things right with your mom, turn yourself in for your mother. So I did. And I still remember uh, being locked up there and on the phone there, and she's like, well, why did you do what you did? You know, Why did you do that? If you're a mother, you, you know that question is, it's hard to answer from some stupid young people like me. But a, a relationship was severed there, and I had to earn her trust back. You know, sometimes you wonder why we can't just kiss and make up and make everything just fine in every rela- relationship. Well, first of all, it's not always appropriate in every relationship. Second of all, uh, there are some steps that take restitution. And so we find here is mankind, it's severed a relationship, we'll find out, with God, and there are gonna have there's gonna come some kind of atonement that has to take place, some kind of some kind of reconciling, restoring of that relationship. And so we find here, I choose to believe this because I see it in my own experience. I see it in the experience of everyone around us here in the world. Every one of us has severed a relationship between us or God or each other in some way or another. It may not be stealing. It may be that you were angry at that person and you, and you fought with them. Or it may be that it was uh, some harsh words that were spoken. Whatever it is, you can find that we have all broken a commandment in one way or the other. So we all know deep down inside that this is true. When we start doing that, relationships can die. I do so no experience tells us this is true, but I believe it because it's also just right there in the Bible. And look at, you know, who's the one who's telling, given this commandment? Jesus. Jesus himself. That's Yahweh God. That's the Lord God in the Old Testament. That's the one who's right there at creation who makes them. That's the one who makes human beings. That's the one who makes the Sabbath day. This is none other than the Lord himself. And what does he say about what Moses writes? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he testifies that what moses wrote is true and so you either believe this is true or you reject the words of jesus too and now i go through the whole hebrew scriptures starting in genesis the lord god makes woman from adam in genesis 2 he officiates at the first wedding between a man and a woman which we were going to find when we get to romans how society is undoing that and he pronounces a formula for marriage the two shall become one a man shall leave his family and all that, and he unite with his wife, and the two shall become one. And then he allows that serpent to come into the garden. You're like, why did he allow that to happen? Well, they've got to make a choice, don't they? Every commitment you make in life involves a choice. No, no different than the one between us and God. Eve twists his words. Satan twists his words. And then we know what happens. They fall, right? Adam and Eve both fall. And does God just leave him alone and say, "Okay, I'm done with you"? I think I'll just nuke you and start the whole world over again. He doesn't do that. It's kind of like when you're watching two young people, two children fight, and you, you're like, "Okay, you get involved at some point." And you're hoping that you're hoping that at some point they'd see the right way to go, and so you're trying to teach them a lesson. And He calls out to them. God knows exactly where they're at, but He wants them to respond. They heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God in the middle of the trees of the garden. They're right there in the midst of where their sin took place. They're hiding themselves in those trees. He keeps calling out to them. He gets a hold of them eventually. pronounces a curse on the land and all different curses because of sin in Genesis 3. This is the Lord himself pronounces a promise to them that there would come one that would crush the head of that serpent, would put an end to that way of death and how can he make that promise because he himself is going to do it and then he makes clothing to cover their nakedness in genesis three twenty one, and then it says in three twenty two he puts them out of the garden and i imagine it's doing he's doing it in sorrow because if this is the same person we're talking about in the new testament he doesn't change he has that sorrow over jerusalem he weeps at the tomb of lazarus whom he's going to resurrect right away imagine him in sorrow having to expel these people from the garden and not be in their presence face to face like he used to. Isn't there some sorrow to that feeling? To that experience? He said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And by the way, we can't handle good and evil in and of ourselves. We, we need God himself knew there was good and evil. They should have just left it with him to know that. But instead, now they're experiencing it. Now lest he put forth his hand, take also the tree of life and eat and live forever... Let's send him out from the garden to till the ground. And it says, and he drove out the man. This is the creator had to do this. Can you imagine knowing that you have to literally expel these people from your presence? And then he, that's the Lord God, placed cherubs at the east of the garden gate and a flaming sword there. And so imagine there you are, the Lord. You've had to, in essence, escort them out. You've stationed two guards there. You see the flaming sword, and you're watching them walk away with their backs to you. Can you now start understanding more of John 3.16? He loves the whole world so much that he would give himself for them. And so he calls out over and over again through the Old Testament, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You're walking away from me. That's your choice. I know out of just some brief repentance in your heart, you might want to turn around and, and come back into the garden. But do you imagine, he knows that they need to see the magnitude of what's going on. Can you imagine them watching as the first leaves start falling like this picture portrays? And they catch one of them in their hands. And something begins to die. Can you imagine being them? And you know that wasn't the way it was intended. I'm not talking about guilt tripping yourself, but imagine what you've caused with each falling leaf with each flower that you pluck and does not come back alive. All of that. Goes on down through time and God still doesn't leave him alone. Noah's day. We find Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I read that text this week in my devotions and I thought, wow, that's amazing. You typically think that God's looking down and he sees Noah and Noah's righteous, right? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He walked with God, the text says. He recognizes that there's kindness in God's eyes. And can you imagine recognizing that kindness and then looking out and seeing the evil in the world and knowing that God has to start over? Imagine the heaviness of bearing that message. Imagine the heaviness of knowing that the one that you love dearly will hurt so much when he has to start the world over. That's why he says, I will not again flood the world with water. And so that rainbow was in the sky this week as I drove around, I saw it, and I thought of this text. Can I look up and see the kindness in my father's eyes? Even as he looks down and sees the evil in this world. Go on down and Yahweh himself promises a child to Abraham and, and that through that child, one whom the, would bless the nations would come. Oh, isn't he talking about himself? Yeah. He would come. And he got on down and we find Abraham goes up to that mountain with his boy and he's got that knife And he's going to bring it down and kill his son. And God stays his hand and and provides a sacrifice. He even said prophetically before that, the Lord himself will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice, as some translations say. Isn't that true? All the way down through every sacrifice, he's saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to bear what you have gone through, I'm going to bear the penalty for that, so you can go back to the way of life. I can restore everything, but I'm going to have to die for you. You go on down, you find in the Exodus experience where we find those Moses movies that come out every once in a while. It's really not a story about Moses at all. It's about how how the Lord led his people out of Egypt, used a man to do it, but he leads them out. And even that human being, Moses, says, there's going to come one, a greater prophet. And who was that? He was talking about himself. The Lord was saying, through this nation, I'm going to come. And I'm going to give words to them. And you go on down through time and you find Moses goes back to those Israelites who've been in captivity. And they, he says, who am I supposed to say who sent me? I am sent you, right? You see that phraseology there in the Old Testament? And Jesus later on says, before Abraham was, I am. And so who is this that he's saying is going to bring them out of Egypt? Oh, Jesus himself. Jesus. Uh, I am and Yahweh are pretty similar as far as their definitions. You find that to be or to exist in the present tense, Yahweh means the same thing, to exist. So it's none other than talking about the same person. And what was his goal when he brought them out of Egypt? I want to dwell among you. Make me a sanctuary so I can dwell among you. I want to restore things to the way they were. That's his heart desire from the beginning all the way down to the end. We get down and... We get to the what we call the Christmas story or the birth of Jesus. And didn't, he, didn't, didn't we have a statement that said, Emmanuel, God with us, in the New Testament? Comes right through the line of Abraham, and here he is, God with us, the one who made the world, the one who gave them the promise, the one who led them out of Egypt, the one who gave them the law of God, the one who gave them every prophet and priest and king. He himself comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's now the greater Moses. He's the greater prophet, priest, and king. He heals people, and he teaches them, and he's also going to become the lamb. That's why I say to reject creation and the creator is to reject this whole story. You cannot reject part of it and keep part of it. It's either all true or not true. And so I read the story of this lamb and how he came and Dies as the lamb. Some of us don't have lambs around us very much, but uh, in that society, it was a symbol of innocence, a symbol of purity. Without blemish, a lamb without blemish would die in your place. He dies never having done anything wrong. As you read the account of his, all the way through the Old Testament, do you find any place where he's done anything wrong? You say, well, yeah, he wiped out those those tribes, right? Uh, Well, did he? Or did they go a path of death that they were carrying out and torturing people all around them? You read a little more closely, you'll find the Moabites and them were not good people to be around. Uh, You think about boiling people alive in Genghis Khan's day. Think about what happened back then in their day. Making the children roast in the fire. Children. And then you tell me if God can't step in and defend those kids. I don't know anybody who wouldn't. And so I can defend God easily from the Old Testament because if, I, if you know the history and the culture of those days and you know what those tribes did in worship, claiming that somehow they're worshiping a God and doing it, then you can understand why God had to have them destroyed. And so I find him all the way through the Old Testament. He comes and all the law and the prophets and everything points to him and something happens on that cross, something that's divine, unexplainable, scientifically unprovable. They say, well, yeah, you poked his side and water and blood came out. It means he died of a, some heart problem. Okay, there's a little science to it. But can you explain what happens when you choose to believe that's true? And you begin to feel that peace inside that if God loves me that much, if I'm of that much eternal value to him, then why wouldn't I want to believe that story? What other story do you want to believe? This world is not getting any better. You can give us trillions of years, it's never going to be that way on our own. Because there's always going to be a mini Hitler or a major Hitler. There's always going to be some kind of genocide or some kind of war. There's always going to be something to get in the way of human progress as we know it. There's always going to be some flaw. And if there's no flaw but ourselves, that's a big enough flaw. And so I can't explain everything that happens on the cross. It's called a miracle miracle. Where somehow we can become at peace with God. We can have an atonement, they call it in the Old Testament. We can be at one with Him all of a sudden when we were far away from Him. And so all Scripture testifies of Jesus. So my question to you is, I hear all these different thoughts out there in Christendom. Can we safely reject one portion of it? I don't think so. Because then eventually you reject my friend Jesus. That's why I ask that simple question all the time. What does this teaching or whatever you want to share with me, uh, I even ask my professors, what does this have to do with Christ? Does it bring me closer to him? I feel like you're drawing me away from him, you know? If it doesn't bring me closer to him, then maybe it's standing in place of him, and I don't want anything to do with it. And so we come to uh, our young people. I, was, I didn't give you your assignment, but the question I had, how does a false picture of creation undermine the cross? What eventually develops if we reject the creation story and the cross? I'll show you what develops. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, even as through one man sin entered the world, Paul believes it. So you've got to get rid of his writings. You've got to take your, your, your uh, scissors and you've got to just cut that right out of the Bible. Okay. I don't know. I think we can learn something from this. So I don't want to cut it out of the Bible, do you? says, through one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed on all men, because we've all sinned. We all know that. I don't care whether you've been in the pew all your lives or not. Been in cradle roll or Sabbath school or Sunday school, or whatever. We all know deep down we've been angry at somebody. We've said hurtful words to somebody. We haven't told the complete truth at a time or two. You just go on down on the list of the Ten Commandments, and either in thought or deed, we've all done it, one of them, wrong. And we all know the feeling it has between us and God, the separation, and then the separation between our fellow man. So Paul's very correct. He says we have all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. Until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. We think the law is negative, but Paul's saying once the law is introduced, which is it was there back in Genesis, wasn't it? Commandment, right? There was a commandment there, not to eat of the tree. So the law was there. And he's saying, if you don't think it was, then you're saying they didn't sin. And God's a liar then. The whole story's a mess. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Maybe you didn't take that fruit, but you've sinned. And Adam is a type of him who was to come. Whoa, that's a whole other sermon there. But nonetheless, Adam points forward to Jesus. Not in his fallen state, but Adam points forward to him in his unfallen state. Think about it. Here he was. He was a child of God. He had rulership of this world. Perfect, without sin. Isn't that Jesus? Unless you want to choose the one after the fruit. I don't want to choose that one. I want G- that's the Jesus I'm talking about. That's what Adam came to be like. Jesus was the second Adam, according to Paul. And he says, But the free gift shall not be also like the offense. For if by the offense of one many died, much more the grace of God and the gift in grace, which is of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many. So you've got a contrast. You can keep going the way of death if you want, Paul says. Or God has been kind. He sent a second Adam, one to say, we can start over if we want, and he will give you, show you his love and kindness on the path to life. So if you reject death came through sin, which a lot of people do these days in science classes, they try to tell you that there's all these millions of years of life and death, life and death. All those geological column layers I had memorized, they they wanted to, to make me believe that somehow there was all this life and death before human beings presented themselves in the world through evolution. But this is saying, no, actually, death came through human beings. It wasn't there before our fault that that's in the world. And now we need to go to Jesus. And so if I reject this story of how sin came into the world and death came into the world through us as human beings, not millions of years before, then I will reject another story. I will undermine creation and I will undermine the cross because the Bible links them together. The Bible links the Sabbath, creation, and the cross all together. And if you want proof for that, go to Revelation 14. The everlasting gospel is linked to worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the fountains, of waters, and all that in them is. So we find Revelation 14 links the good news of Jesus with the creator worship. And then you go over to Hebrews and it says, today is the day of salvation. It goes on and mentions, therefore there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And some people say, well, that means we can worship every day today. You know? No, actually it's saying that to reject the rest and not enter into it is to reject the salvation. Because every week when I rest from Friday night to Saturday night, I am saying, Lord, you know how tired I've been. (laughs) You're gonna get me through this day. I'm laying aside my job and everything else and you say, yeah, you're the preacher, you gotta preach that day. Yeah, well, you know what? The cook prepares the food Thursday and Friday and sets it out for people to eat, right? And so, yeah, there I am, I'm resting today. That's why I enjoy doing what I do. All through the week, it's been prepared. And here I am just putting out the food before you. And so Friday comes, my kids gather around, and we sing praises to God, and I bless my little family. And I say, Lord, I want them to be the people you want them to be. Saturday night comes, popcorn pops, and some other things happen, and my little boy asked me to, to sing a song again. I think I'm going to say no. I, wanna, I feel kind of sad that the Sabbath is I want to just keep going. And what am I resting in? I'm resting in my heavenly family. I'm resting in the fact that Jesus died for me. And he rested on Fr- from Friday night to Saturday night. He rose on Sunday. And so I'm going to rest every week in the fact knowing that Jesus died for me. And now I'm going to go to the newness of life on Sunday. I'm going to br- go through my week even if I feel tired at times, with that knowledge that he's going to give me power to get through it. So to undermine the Sabbath and creation is to undermine the cross. It's all linked together. It's all about him. Staying connected is not just focusing on Jesus, a dead Savior. It's focusing on the fact of what, everything he's done for us. And so I want to lift up Jesus as my crucified Savior, but my risen Savior as well, and my Creator God. And that is the teaching that the church needs. You need to be encouraged that what you've believed, and somehow you got into the head of some old grandpa of mine that was truth, and somehow he threw out a little flyer to his his teenage boy, grandsons, that is truth, don't ever give it up. Otherwise, you're going to have a real multitude of options out there. There's a goal to split Adventism into many churches, at least two. And I think if we stand firm on the bedrock of Scripture, especially Jesus Christ's foundation, all these teachings are foundational in Jesus. We will not be deceived. That poem will have the positive aspects for us. We'll be praying, seeking God's Word, sharing God's Word, changing the world one person at a time or multitudes at a time, whatever God sees fit. But this church will go through. Next fall I'm going to be talking about the Iceberg Chronicles and we'll deal with more of this. But I want to move on now because the results of not knowing, acknowledging the Lord are even worse than that. What ends up happening is they know, people begin to say, I know God, but they change God into their own image or to images of things in nature. That's pretty hard to imagine, wouldn't it be? It's bad enough to, to develop your own picture of God. That's bad enough. But then to to somehow downgrade God to being equal with creation. Uh, We get pantheism from that, don't we? God's in everything. Pan uh, is this idea of each, every, all. All is God. Pantheism. Or you get the John Harvey Kellogg, which was panentheism. All in God or God is in all. Either one, same type of thing. This says we cannot do that. If we hold fast the creation narrative and it's a narrative of Jesus, and we hold fast the truth, then we won't become like this. Maybe that's why they were so angry. Maybe mine was just an opinion, and they were willing to argue with my opinion. And so it was just, I don't know. I felt like it was talking, I was talking about God. Not Just an opinion. Maybe it's my interpretation, but it's still the word of God. And so. God cannot be in a fallen nature unless he is invited there. Nature is not inviting him there. Humanity has to invite him one heart at a time. And then eventually he will restore nature to the way it was. So I reject pantheism and panentheism and every version of it because it detracts my God from the picture. And it says eventually we'll take the truth of God and we'll turn it into a lie because we worship the creature more than the creator. And this really is the root of all pet opinions, pride, things that prevent forgiveness. If you somehow devalue us each other as human beings, if you, if you somehow take God out of the picture, and then human beings become equal with things in nature. Isn't that where we get the whole extreme animal rights movement? Okay, and then all, even the puppy dogs can sit up and say, I have rights, right? So Plato said that years ago, that even at the end, democracy will get to the point where it's so out of whack that even the puppy dogs arise and say they have rights. And so what happens in our country? We neglect the Creator, we reject His Word, we take Him out of the picture, and then guess what? I can steal from you, I can kill you, I can do anything I want to because you are not worth very much. That's why there's crime in the land, because they've rejected the Savior. But if I put God back into the picture, And I recognize on each one of your heads it's a crown. Not yet, but it's there. Each one of you is going to be an ambassador to some unfallen world somewhere. You're going to travel the skies. Why would I want to hurt my brother or sister in Christ? Why would I want to detract and have all of this terrible behavior, males with males, all kinds of weird lusts? Why would I want that? Now, is this all happening here in our church today? No, maybe not all that homosexuality, but uh, I will never do a homosexual wedding here in this church. I will go to jail before I would ever do that. Amen. So if you knew of anybody who wanted to make a homosexual bomb here at the church and try to get the pastor on the spot, I'm sorry. I would resign and leave this before I would ever do something like that. But that's not in our church, so maybe this here, maliciousness and quarrels, whispers being unmerciful, maybe that's what we need to work on. Maybe there's some relationships in the past that haven't, been, haven't gone so well. And you say you forgive the person, but really there's something between you and them. That's not as bad as uh, the other things, is it? it actually, it is. It lists it right there. And so we show that we know God by how we treat each other. And I want to treat, hopefully, if I, if I mess up, I'll, I'll apologize to you. And I'll try to work on it. Um, And some of you have softened me over the last year here because I know I'm sometimes just straightforward sometimes. So I apologize for that. But we must be a community of faith that is known to be merciful or eventually we will turn into the same type of communities we're seeing out there, and we don't want to be that. And so if we undermine creation, we undermine the cross and Yahweh himself, and you become your own God, Determining what is right and wrong. And then we're back in the time of the judges, aren't we? Each one does what is right in his own sight. And I don't want to do that. So I'm going to accept the creation. I'm going to accept the cross. That's my Lord himself. I'm going to accept that he is going to restore things according to the way he made it. And then eventually, as I restore the creation and the cross, then I restore my biblical view of death and restoration. I'm right back in that science class. And I'm standing for God. Even if people don't want to stand with me. And not only that, I restore a group of believers who are looking forward to seeing Jesus. You know, uh, I had a nightmare this week. It happened in broad daylight. Uh, Eyes were open. And uh, what happened was I went looking for Union College on the Internet. And as I went looking for Union College on the Internet, I typed in what I thought, remember, the old address for Union College, uh, unioncollege.edu. And something happened. It came up on the screen. It was this. And I thought, that looks like Union College. You know, that looks almost exactly like their thing up there. And I started reading this website, and it said, think above your major. Majors don't really matter. It's, it's all of us together learning. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. It kind of made me wonder about it. You also notice there's, some, there's a Catholic symbol up there. And then well, I didn't notice that. And then I read through their mission statement. They said they were to thrive at the intersections of scientific probing and artistic flair. I thought, whoa, this, is this a Christian campus? Of intellectual curiosity and serious fun of an idyllic campus in an urban setting. I thought, well, I, I knew that they were kind of on the edge of town in Lincoln, Nebraska. I didn't think they were quite that urban, but I, I read that page, and I thought, oh man, this is, this is strange. So I started looking around the website some more, and I pulled up another picture, and it had a campus. And I said, whoa, the whole campus has changed since I was there. Look at this, the sci- this, this new uh, cathedral-like science building is right in the middle of campus, and everything intersects to it. Ugh. They've gone beyond that science class I took. They're now all, science is the middle of the whole campus. And what was even more problematic was their mission statement, which had nothing to do with Jesus. It didn't even mention the word Jesus or Christ at all. It was a Christian campus, said. I thought, wow. Well, thankfully, I was sitting there in my chair, and like, oh, this can't be right. And so I went on the Internet, looked up Union College again on Google, and I pulled up the right page, uh, which you'll notice a little difference there, Oh, that was a relief. And it noticed the students were serving Jesus and making a difference for God and all of this. And I'm like, oh, good, that's Union College. But you notice, this is pretty similar, isn't it? And I sat back there after I found it with the relief and I looked up to just make sure I wanted to see their virtual tour, make sure that the Dick Building was still here, which is the center of campus. All, the, all of them had the, the theology departments there and all of that, and they all learn. And what's also contained in the Dick Building is the Golden cords, our missionary service, us going and impacting the world for Jesus. And so I said, oh, good, it's still in the middle of campus, and the library is still there. You know, all this was still there. I went through a virtual nightmare <laughs> right in front of me as I was just trying to pull up a picture for you, of that first picture of Union College. But the thought came to me, um, if we don't keep the biblical view before us, couldn't that nightmare actually happen? Right there, I'm sitting in my chair, and the thought comes to me, Murray, if no one upholds what we're talking about in the Bible, upholds this message of Jesus, I mean, the Seventh-day Adventists are really some of the last ones that are doing it, then that's exactly what's going to happen to your beloved campus that you graduated from. Well, I didn't want to sit there too long in my chair and ponder that, so I decided to find a beautiful quotation in our sermon with, This is what I want to end it with. I believe that God is going to restore this world the way it was. And look at this vision. I was taken to a world which had seven moons. There I saw good old Enoch, who had been translated. On his right arm he had bore a glorious palm. So imagine this palm coming off of there. And on each leaf was written, victory. Around his head was a dazzling white wreath and leaves on the wreath. And the middle of each leaf was written, this word, purity, And around the wreath were stones of various colors that shone brighter than the stars. I looked up this phrase, and they shine like stars. Can you imagine a little star on your crown? This little thing actually just shining. It's got to have the light of God in it. And cast a reflection upon the letters and magnified them. The words purity and victory were magnified because of those little stars. On the back part of his head was a bow that confined the wreath. So it's tied back there, and it has the word holiness written there. This is your crown, guys. This is something that you have to imagine. Above the wreath was a lovely crown. So you not only have that one, you got this lovely crown. That shone brighter than the sun. I asked him if this was the place he was taken to. Enoch, is this where you went to when you came from the world? When you were taken up to the world, to the sky? He said, no, it is not. The city is my home. That's where we're going, Right? and I have come to visit this place. So he's in this world with seven moons, and he's got his crowns on, and he's there visiting it, but his home's back in the city, the city that we all want to be a part of. He moved about the place as if it was perfect, he was perfectly at home. I begged my attending angel to let me remain in that place. I could not bear the thought of coming back to the dark world again. Then the angel said, You must go back, and if you are faithful, you with 144,000, and later on she talks about more than that, but shall have the privilege of visiting all the worlds and viewing the handiwork of God. Imagine you, you yourself with a crown right now, here in this place. By faith, heaven sees a crown on your head. You have eternal value to him. And soon and very soon, we're gonna go to a city that he's prepared, and we're gonna watch the whole world be recreated, and we're gonna watch the handiwork of God. And so not only... We must accept the creation story and the cross story. But we must also accept the restoration story. And that is that the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, will come back in the clouds, will take us to that place. The lion will lie down with the lamb. That's a true story. Amen. And So I want to focus on that. That we're all going to be there as a family. And so Sabbath's just become a family get-together here where we encourage each other and we look forward to that day. So stay connected with Jesus. He's the creator. He was there at creation. He's here today. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name, whoever was, Jesus Jesus, It was the Lord, or yod Hei vav Hey Lord. We're thankful for that name above all names that can lead us to understand that he made everything. He died upon the cross to give us the way back to that garden, and he's coming again soon take us home to that beautiful city where we'll travel to worlds unknown, beautiful places beyond this world. But until then, Lord, help us to realize this is your world. This is our Father's world, and we are to reach it for Jesus Christ with a message of truth that's grounded and has a foundation of Jesus himself. Guide us to, the, to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.